Welcome, everybody, to another episode of After Further Review. Mark Ferreira, John Pelkey, Jeff Taylor, our producer on the board. And here we are, everyone out there in podcast land, trying to determine if these are the worst of times or if these are the best of times. And again, you know, the best of times requires maybe a little bit of bigger picture, 40,000 feet. But I mean, wasn't it Billy Joel who said the good old days weren't always good and tomorrow ain't as bad as it seems on a highly overrated album? Indeed. My Indeed. favorite, my favorite Billy Joel song. I know you, I know you think it's a highly overrated album, but, uh, you know, it's, 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 to me, I don't think it's his best, but it was significant in my life and I highly enjoy it. We're talking about Innocent Man. At any rate, could this be a turnaround day, people? First of all, uh, on a, you know, let's go from the very, very local to the biggest picture out there. The, the, the smallest version right now in terms of our particular show and these three people here, I will say I have gotten a deposit in my bank today. Wow of everything that's owed me retroactively. Really? Yes. See, now mine got a little weird because I got yet another of those $600 checks yeah. that, that we're supposed to get. And they had previously sent me, and in Florida, if you're, not, if you're not listening to the show from Florida, they send you, the default way to get it is on a card, is on one of those, uh, you know, it's like a, not a credit card, but it's like the a debit, debit card, card type yeah. thing. Uh, so I got one of those because I hadn't set it up otherwise. And uh, so I got an, a, another $600 installment. I think it's the third. And all of a sudden yesterday with that came a check for the state. I'd never changed how I was supposed to get it. And the first two came on the card, and now I've gotten a check. I can explain that. All right, please do. The check that you got today was what was considered the waiting week that's typically that they had waived. They waived a waiting week, so they sent everybody's waiting week waived check out. Uh, well, they still owe me some back stuff, but that that makes sense all of a sudden because I, I had gone in and I was going – I did the thing where I went on – I finally got on, and I was going to go ahead and change – how I got it because I didn't. I would prefer not right. to have gotten it on the card, and then the whole system <laughs> crashed on me, and I never did it. But then I got the check, and I was thinking, did I start the process, and did it? Uh, you know, because that whole thing. If for those of you who haven't had to deal with the Florida unemployment website, it is uh, wow. It is Commodore sixty four ready. Yeah, it's as Byzantine as as they come. But I finally was able to break through the other day, and they gave me retroactive 125, which apparently is what they do whilst they check up on everything else for the 600, and the rest, you know, another, you know, whatever it was, 475 for 11 weeks. I got that check, so I I've gotten 6600 in in like three days. Wow! Dumped into my bank account after having 12 weeks. Of not a dime. Wow. You can make more than I have now. So anyway, it it's a turnaround day for me. I can you know I can look at it and I can look at the bank account and I can think, all right, well it's not going to drain as fast as it was. Bars and were open, so just in time. Let's go. There you go. <laughs> the job numbers are out, and that this is pretty. I I guess it could be inexplicable to some degree, but I guess it could be highly explicable as well. But 2.5 jobs added. Yeah, I think it's highly explicable. I think uh, with certainly with the openings, some places, I think people went back to work. It went from yeah, zero to 2.5. Yeah, people went back to work. 
And I yeah. also think that there were there was federal hiring for people uh, to do tests throughout the country. Um, from what I understand from some things I've uh, read, shipping companies are still um, looking for people, some warehouse jobs, because most people have yet to go out to brick and mortar stores. They're still buying stuff online. So I think it's somewhat explicable. And listen, I, I, I know the president's out there touting, you know, everything's all great and everything. And I don't think that's true. But I think this is some good news. And I'm going to take it as good news. Good for you. And I would say then as we continue to get bigger picture, you know, charges were were uh, were, were brought against the other three officers in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. Uh, protests or the violent nature of some of the protests have calmed down a degree yep. be- because of all of these things. And perhaps, you know, Universal Studios open today for crying out loud. Yep. I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe this is day one of our new normal uh in the United States, where we're just not hunkered down, and when we're not hunkered down, we're screaming in the streets. So perhaps this is day one of that new, uh, I don't know, way back up to what our new normal will be for at least the next year, I would think. I would uh, like I, to think. I, I mean, what do you think? Are you okay with that I with that posture? Well, I what I would think is I don't think this is the beginning of the end of the coronavirus situation and what we're dealing with in the pandemic. But I do think it might be the end of the beginning. So I think we're probably past that that initial point where uh, with with the massive lockdown, I think we're going to look at now, obviously, keep keep a look at the numbers, start opening up a little bit. If we can identify hotspots, uh, deal with those. So I think we're at the end of the beginning, Mark Ferreira, and I think that is uh, that that's something to be celebrated as well. I actually, and I know this is surprising for people, I actually um, feel uh, feel really, really good and positive today as Mark's taking his microphone apart while we do the show, and Jeff's waving wildly at Mark not to take his microphone apart. Uh, I was just going to say, unplug it from the computer and plug it back in. So anyway, uh, I, because I finished a, a, a home project, I built the put the barn door on uh, on the bathroom. Mark got to see that because he stopped by yesterday. It's now complete with the uh, the soft opening things on each end, so it doesn't slam. It's level. It works. It's beautiful. It, it's it's highly impressive. And it opens up the entire bathroom, John Pelkey. Yeah, we have a very small master bathroom, and and when the doors open, it just really doesn't uh, afford you any room in there. The wife and I are getting ready, and there's only one sink. It's a little small. So we put that in, so now we have a lot more room in the bathroom if both of us have to be in there at the same time, or even if it's just you in there. All right, so that's good. Everything's good on on, on your end, Jeff. I feel positive. Well, I was going to say you're, you're you're remarkably optimistic and positive today, John, and I'm not sure that what that does for our show. My instinct is that it makes it, well, a little more boring. Go ahead there, Jeff. I was going to say my favorite Billy Joel song. The lyrics are they say that these are not the best of times, but they're the only times I'll ever know. So I like to make the best of the only ones I'll ever know. So I'm going to go with uh, that. Uh, it's it's a good time. There you go, Jeff Taylor. I like it. I do like the positivity, and it's something that we all need as a, as a individuals, there's no doubt, as a community and as a country and as a world. Uh, and with that in mind, uh, this is a perfect example of that. We have a progressive trivia coming up that was just recently invented. 
by John Pelkey because I tasked him with it 10 minutes before the show, ladies and gentlemen. So, again, this is uh, sort of goes to the narrative dynamic of this show, me sort of screwing up, John saving the day. So go ahead, John Pelkey. <laughs> Really is the it really is as we as we search for as we search for a mission statement. Yes, uh, we were asked yes. by my wife, yes. "What's the mission statement?" You know, she has a not for profit, so you can imagine sure. she's got a mission statement, and, and all you know, there are officers for her non profit uh, pet rescue and everything. What's your mission statement? And I immediately said to have the most success with the least amount of um, effort. And she said yes. she didn't think that was good. I thought it was kind of what everyone's mission statement should be work well, smart not hard yeah if they're being honest with themselves come exactly. on exactly come on people you know come on all right here we go look for major league baseball player past or present here then the clues 15 plus years in the majors for three teams cy young award winner 200 plus wins a 3.27 career era over 2100 strikeouts won 20 or more games only once in my career. All right. I like it. I like it. I don't necessarily have a timeline on this guy yet, but that's okay. Right. I do like the baseball ones, and uh, I, I know the baseball ones are, are tougher to figure out because there's so many stats you can throw out there. Yeah. But one more. Over 200 wins is significant for a pitcher. Yes. Uh, not many have done that, and um, – 3.24, but, but only more than 20 once. I thought that was significant as well. Yeah, there's a there's a bit of a compiler factor in there, uh, perhaps depending. And uh, interesting stuff. 3.24 is pretty solid. 3.27. I'm so sorry. Okay, 3.27. 2100 strikeouts is very good, depending on how many innings. All, All right. right, very good. Thank you, John. We lost you there. Dropped out. We'll get, All right, we'll get back to. You dropped uh, out for a second. You're back. Okay. Again, I I'm feeling fine. Did you hear me drop out, Jeff Taylor? I did not. Okay. Oh, all right. Well, it must be on my end. All right. This wishful thinking by my computer. Mark's gone. If <laughs> wow, the computer is self-aware and not wanting to hear me at all, even even though I only speak twenty percent of the time in this show. All right, let's move on to the uh, well to the story that dominated yesterday, certainly, uh, and and that's about Drew Brees. Not only his uh, comments the day before. But the reaction to his comments, his comments essentially were talking about, and we mentioned this on the show, uh, you know, that he will never before any, uh, you know, before any sort of protest that disrespects the flag and uh, therefore disrespects the military. It reminds him of his grandparents. And he sort of goes on and on about how that's a non-starter for him. And we had a discussion about that. And I think very uh, productive discussions uh, in my mind in terms of just people all of us, frankly, just opening up to understanding where people are coming from so that you can progress the discussion past, you know, yelling and pointing fingers at each other. Well, the initial reaction to him was sort of all about that. People were like, wow, dude, you do not get it. And it was pretty. Yeah, they were killing him. They were killing him. It was pretty vociferous. It really yeah. was. And even his teammates, Michael Thomas, you know, saying you don't get it. You just don't get it. And, uh, you know, I thought at the time, you know, this is too much. It needs to stay respectful, people. Again, if we want to have it, if we want to have solutions, are we into solutions or are we just into trying to lecture people and, and, and prove how enlightened and right we are? 
I mean, do we or do we want actual solutions? And if we want solutions, we need to we need to have the conversation progress. We can't have half of the people involved in the conversation say, screw you, I'm out of here. So initially I was thinking, let's keep this thing respectful. But it got pretty it got pretty pointed, John Pelkey, I would say yeah. it, it got pretty heated. Yeah, you can look up uh, some of the uh, some of the folks and what they said. And I don't want to misquote anybody, so I'm not going to go to any absolute. Uh, I'm not going to. I'm, I'm not going to quote anyone, but uh, Ed Reed, among others, former uh, All Pro safety, Hall of Fame. Is Ed, Ed's in the Hall of Fame now, isn't he? Or he's going in this year? I can't. I, can, I can't keep track. He, anyway, he's going to be in the Hall of Fame if he's not already, and, and I think he may be already. Anyway, he was very, very vitriolic in his uh, in his attack. On, well, I, on his response, let's just say that I don't want to call it an attack, uh, play into that, but uh, and any number of other athletes who really, really went after Drew Brees. I actually thought one of the best uh, responses that I saw came from Charles Barkley. Um, and it's interesting because Barkley is a guy who has made some mistakes that have been very, very public in uh in his career, any number of mistakes, including throwing somebody through a plate glass window here in Orlando, I think at Church Street Station at one point. But um, Barkley said, "I initially, when I heard what he said, I was, I was, I was upset with that. I thought that was very wrong. What he said, I thought his his position was uh, uh, in, inappropriate on that, and then he or or I think." something to that effect. But then Barkley said, but then I saw the response and I thought it was way over the top. He said, and, you know, yeah. you take a, you take a guy's um, what you know about him. And Drew Brees is known to be somebody who works. Uh, he's beloved on his team. Sure. From, from everything that we know, he's done a lot of work in the community. He seems yep. to really be a solid dude. Great leader. Um, you know, so everybody who's played with him said he's a great guy to go in, into, into battle or into game with. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe we can take a step back and realize that good people sometimes do the wrong thing and people see everything through their prism. And sometimes it takes an event like this to realize that your prism is, isn't necessarily, um, uh, objective and, 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 and definition is not objective. It's subjective. I think. I think we talked about this yesterday, John, is that his apology, Drew Brees, he came out with a, an apology that both of us thought was not only sincere and authentic and really got to the heart of it, but was not at all like the standard apologies you see, which is, you know, if what I said offended anyone, I'm right. sorry that you're offended. Right. So I'm sorry that you didn't take my comments in the way I intended them. That was not this at all. He copped. He copped to not having the kind of empathy he needed for the kind of pain and the kind of experience, frankly, that a lot of other people have gone through. And one of the first things it said is, I'm pretty sure there were black soldiers fighting along with your grandparents, you know, in World War II as well, who were fighting for a flag that at one point hopefully would, you know, allow them to vote for crying out loud. So Drew Brees came back with this, not only an apology, but a big picture uh, look at everything. And he put himself in a position of someone who truly didn't get the pain and the experience that everyone else had been through. 
and he vowed to, you know, be more open, be more understanding, be more empathetic, you know, and he even did the Black Lives Matters yeah. uh, hashtag. Yeah. And to me, I thought that was authentic. Michael Thomas came back and said, this is this is my guy. This is my guy. You know, you, you make a mistake. But 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 here he is. This is how he really is. You know, there was a lot of love. But then there's still people out there, John, who said, well, that apology just proves the guy doesn't get it. He just right. doesn't get it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I saw some of that. Uh, somebody in the, the, we, we both know said, oh, it's it, I, I'm not buying the sincerity. Obviously, it was written by a publicist. And I just want to let everybody know that if you have the level of celebrity that Drew Brees has, it's a pretty good chance you have a publicist. And it's a pretty good chance if you are a brand that you check with a publicist when you do things, uh, when you issue statements. Um, and I have no issue with that whatsoever. Um, it didn't, to me, diminish what I thought was the heartfeltness. And to your point, Mark, the thing that was most apparent was you see, uh, most people think of an apology as I'm sorry. But now it's become I'm sorry because you were offended. But he said, I'm sorry because what I did was wrong. And I think that there's far too little of that right. in the apology business. And what I did hurt. Yeah, what, I, what did, I did, I recognize hurt it hurts you. people. Yes. And, and now it's, I believe it's incumbent, if people want change, I believe it's incumbent for the other side to say, all right, well, let me tell you why I feel this way. Why did you react that way initially? And he can tell, again, about his grandparents and, you know, he was obviously raised with some level of the military tradition to respect and all of that. And I, I think people can understand themselves a little. And I said this before about uh, kneeling for the national anthem, which I know offends a lot of people and they, you know, they've created this whole thing about it, but it's, it, it might not be something that I would choose to do. And it doesn't need to be something you would choose to do, but you do owe yourself and the person who's doing it the um, at least the humanity to find out why they're doing it. And I think that goes both ways. Yes. It, it you know, for, for guys like me and you, John, we see someone <laughs> brandishing a Confederate flag and and a long gun. I mean, my level of empathy for wh where that guy might be hurt or where that guy might feel wronged or where that guy might um have uh, a feeling that he's not being heard, I immediately dismiss every bit of it. Right. I judge him. I label him. And as we were talking, let's just start with the Confederate flag. I was watching the last waltz and we brought this up. I think I was watching the last waltz the other day and there's a, there's an interview and this is Martin Scorsese, New York liberal. This is Robbie Robertson, you know, that, all the band in, 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 all the members of the band outside of Levon Helm are Canadian for crying out loud. So it's like these all these liberals, so quote unquote, and they're sitting in a room with a Confederate flag behind them, having an interview about their career and about the road and about it's it's great. It's a great scene in the movie, and it's 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 just that at that time, you know, and and Tom Petty talks about this as he grew up. Yeah, this was just. This was just their flag in the South. This was just their flag. And it didn't represent, even though we know the history, that it was a battle flag and then brought out again for KKK stuff and brought out again for Jim Crow stuff, you know, to, to symbolize white supremacy. But that's not how people who grew up in the South in a certain time, probably right. even in the second half of the 20th century, 
uh, thought of it. And so maybe it's like it's like someone coming to you, John, and saying, you know, um, you know, 1776, the musical 1776 was written by a, a, a guy just so full of white privilege and <laughs> and just glossed over so much. And it really brought the movement of equality in the United States. I don't know if something if someone somehow accused you of that. It's something that you grew up with, something you've loved, and you've. That's the only way to have real empathy is to equate it. Someone coming right. to me with, you know, the 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 Giants and the Forty ers organization have have had systemic racism, you know, for years, and you have just you just haven't known about it, Mark. And it's like, well, wait a minute, I'm going to push back. I'm going to. I'm going to push back a little bit at first. Right. And so it, it works for both sides is what this, you know, ramble is trying to is trying to communicate that that on our side, we need to tolerate what we loathe as well, not just tell other people to tolerate what they loathe. And, and you know, taking the whole John Adams quote about how the country was formed. We all have to do it. If we if we truly want a solution, John, as opposed to just being a, having a chance to to be righteous and, and enlightened and, and right. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think we all, you know, and I've had friends of color who said who have said that it's not my job to educate white people. And I understand that. I certainly do. But it is the job to to be to help create a more educated world. And I don't know how I, I can reconcile those two thoughts, but I do believe that there are people who are uh, who who just simply as they've gone through their life you know, uh, growing up, getting married, having kids, having a job. They don't really, a lot, unlike you and I, Mark, a lot of people don't look back at history and don't look deeply into those things because it's not of interest to them and they're, they're doing other things. Um, Probably and, more important things for their life and their family. As raising opposed to their us, family. <laughs> as, you know, as opposed to us getting involved in things in minutia that does right. not matter. Is it, is it, it doesn't make me a better person that I'm now rereading Dumas Malone's five bo- volume biography on Thomas Jefferson. No, it doesn't. Rereading people. I've read it before. How, if, spoiler alert. I know how it ends. Sure. And on what day? And you, and um, you know, <laughs> you do, we are. Yes. And, and, you know, I think any person that knows that, you know, that's an American should know the day Thomas Jefferson died. I'm sorry. That's and I just me. And I would think. If 15% of the people we asked knew it, I would be incredibly surprised. But that, for that notwithstanding, you know, these people are, most people are going about their, their business. It's that old canard that you'll, uh, or not canard, but that's, it's that old saying that you'll hear every now and again uh, concerning yourself. It's like, you know, don't worry so much about what people are thinking about you. They're not. And we all that's just a- assume. Yeah. That yeah. everybody's had the same experience and everybody's thinking the same thing, and they're That's, not. That is the truth. Speaking of uh, not having the same experience, uh, Jeff Taylor, yes. your thoughts on um, on the Drew Brees reaction and uh, just the overall conversation that John and I have because it's kind of a good a good uh, a good check to check in with you, who clearly has uh, you know some different political leanings. Well, I, I, you know that I agree with uh, Drew Brees on the kneeling during the national anthem thing. So I agreed with his statement. But uh, my, my thing, my thoughts on it are: um, when are we going to start uh, considering when this is legitimately uh, going after somebody, as opposed to just bullying somebody for saying something you don't like? 
because I feel like when there when there is a a mob that comes out after somebody on social media, sometimes it's just bullying someone for something they've said, as opposed sure. to looking at Drew Brees' history. I mean, during her after Hurricane Katrina, he was heralded for the work that he did in that city, which affected quite a few African-Americans who were displaced by that hurricane. And he was a great guy. So he comes out and makes a statement from his heart and is just lambasted for for making a statement that I think that he has a right to have that opinion. He does. Here's here's where here's where I'm going to push back a little on that. It's not the the having of that opinion i think what and obviously you know all of this things don't happen in a vacuum and this is happening in a time where uh, i i know a lot of people will say this is politically correct and call me a snowflake and all this but, but, but we should be really really careful uh, about our words words mean things and right now we're in we're in a we're in a time where uh words and actions are all under a microscope because there's a lot of pressure on everyone and what's going on and uh, and we are seeing the country confronting uh, issues of race like they haven't probably for, you know, Mark, 50, 50 years at this point since, let's say, 1968. Um, but I think where the the real vitriol towards uh, Breeze came, not in his saying, you know, it's my opinion is you shouldn't do this. What he said was when asked about it. I wouldn't do anything to disrespect the flag. And again, the thing that people on my side are trying to say, what Colin Kaepernick was trying to say, was that we weren't disrespecting the flag. And that's where, you, you know, you just you can't find common ground on that with some people, because some people just feel so strongly that that's what you're doing. And some of us would argue, no, actually, you're living up to the ideals of the country, which is what the flag represents. And uh, I think, you know, and again, I don't want to argue that anymore because we're not going to necessarily we're not going to agree on those sort of things. But I think I think that's where it came into uh, into play and sounded like a white privilege thing, which, you know, maybe having that opinion is, though, I know there are uh, veterans of color that don't like uh, kneeling for uh, before the flag. Um, but I think I think that's where it comes into play. It's, it wasn't a you know what I said before. I might let's go. Let's go to flag burning. Let's take that one. If we will take it up a step further. I think everyone has the right to burn the flag. I would never do that. That's one that's a bridge too far for me. And Neither would Rick Monday. Rick Monday would never do that. <laughs> yeah, it not 45 year old reference, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> four people will get it. I wouldn't. I wouldn't I, I, but I do understand that there are people who get to the point that do that. And I think that is, again, that is what the flag encompasses, is that freedom to do something like that. Well, and preventing people from those from doing those things, I think that's when you start stepping into, into fascism. How do you separate being careful with what you say from being courageous enough to say what you feel? Because I think that if if we start being careful about saying things that could be potentially looked at by the masses as bad, you really paint yourself into living in fear of saying things. And I don't know who said it, but courage is the most important virtue because without it, all other virtues fall. So if you can't be courageous in saying what's on your mind or in your heart, then I feel like you will lose a lot of other virtues. If, if, if I could respond, John, and you please, can hold that please thought. Please do. Um, I, I, think, 
I think you need to be, you, you can be courageous and you, and you cannot, you know, courage is not being afraid, right? By definition, it's the sort of the opposite of fear. So you're not afraid. You can still be careful. You could still be measured. You could still be thoughtful and not be afraid, knowing that maybe what you're going to say is going to push some buttons. And I think, I think, uh, I think there is a balance. I think it's tough. I think it, there's a difference between a, a, a measured, thought-through, passionate statement. It's the Atlanta mayor who was highly impassioned and yet calm, highly uh, uh, pointed and, and, yet, and yet thoughtful. You know, y- you can do both. There's a difference between that and flying off the cuff. And to your point, Jeff, I will give you this. That Jeff, that Drew Brees was not sort of just off the cuff, you know, granted he was asked that and he wasn't prepared for it, so it was off the cuff in that sense, but he's a pretty thoughtful guy. And I will agree with you that this mob mentality is a problem. It When people start piling on, for the sake of piling on, frankly, because talk about lack of courage, it's the easiest thing in the world to pile on when a thousand 400,000, 2 million people have already piled on. So I have a problem with that as well, Jeff. But at the same time, uh, obviously something broke through to Drew Brees, and he apologized with a heartfelt apology. And to try and move this conversation forward, what did you think of his apology? Did you think think he showed a lack of courage with the apology. I thought that I thought he showed a lot of courage with the apology. Frankly, what's your thoughts? I believe that he apologized because he felt like it was going to help him move past this, which I can give credit for. I think that sometimes you have to choose not necessarily the right thing to do, because of the fact that you you look at how it could affect you long term. So that's one way that I look at it. After listening to what you and John have said, if he apologizes and, and says that he feels like he said something wrong, if he really believes that what he said was wrong, then I then he obviously made a good apology. Did it help? I don't believe it helped a ton, but uh I think that I think that a lot of time that that when you get put up against the, these mobs that come after you, uh, apologies are are seen as the uh, sign of weakness, and it it brings the mob out even more. So it's it's a tough thing for me to say. All right, John, I'll give you the last word since I'm running this show. If you want any last words, we can move on. Well, again, I just want to say I think uh, I, I agree. If, if Drew Brees's point, if he had made, if he had said, you know, uh, uh, I'm in my opinion kneeling uh, during the flight, that that that's not something I would do because I I, I feel that that is just not with who I am, and I have right. family in the military. But I understand what what. Uh, what they are, uh, uh, yeah. the people who advocate that are are advocating it for what what the uh, the reason behind it is, and I certainly you know he could jump on and support that, and I don't know he may have at some point in 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 this interview that was I don't know Fortune Online or something was whatever uh, fly by night outfit it was uh, <laughs> that uh, he. Uh, 
if he had said something like that, but I think where it really got in was when he when he was asked about how do you feel about kneeling during the national anthem, he said, I would never do anything to uh, to to denigrate the flag or to. And I think what everybody was trying to say was, well, see, that's that's not how we see it. So you can say you wouldn't do it because you don't like it. But to say we were doing it to disrespect the flag, that's where the issue. Falls. Yeah, but, that's good. That's a that's yeah. a nice distinction. And and at the same time. You know, our side can say, listen, I understand that you take this very, very seriously about kneeling for the flag. And I know that that offends you. And I'm sorry, but this is the way I choose to do that. And it's a lot, you know, already we're making strides because you're just talking about what you're doing. You're not you're not saying your reaction to what I'm doing is wrong or right. And it's Drew Brees. If he would have just said, this is what I would prefer to do, to your point, John. And so in that sense, I'm just framing what you just said. You still had the last word. Let's go to let's go to progressive trivia. <laughs> see, see, you can't be trusted. See, I everything know. I've said on this show. I know. Open sheep's clothing. All right. Let's revisit our first four clues for our Major League Baseball player. 15 plus years in the majors for three teams. Cy Young Award winner. Uh, 200 plus wins, 3.27 career ERA, over 2,100 strikeouts, won 20 or more games in a season only once. I'm six-time All-Star, former MVP. I played with George Brett and Will Clark, and I've won multiple World Series. Wow. Wow. MVP. How about that? Yeah. MVP as a pitcher. Not too often. Yeah. That's yeah, a good yeah, yeah. clue. Thank you. That is a good clue. Wow. MVP is a pitcher, and he's won multiple World Series. Mm-hmm. Played with three teams. All right. George Brett and Will Clark. Natural enemy of George Brett. Uh, we'll yeah, well, dive into the George Brett-Will Clark issue. Where, where's George Brett? George Brett is a Southern California guy, right? Is he a Southern uh, California guy? Him and Ken, his brother? Maybe weren't they SoCal guys? And of course, of course, Will Clark is, you know what, Louisiana, Mississippi. Where did he go to school? I Although think he, Mississippi State. Mississippi State. He went, he went to Mississippi State. Yeah, That's prettiest prettiest swing of all time, in my opinion. Will Clark. Yeah. Oh yeah, it, he extended those arms, and man, did it look pretty. It worked. Yeah, too. I always loved him. George Brett. No George Brett is a coach somewhere in the majors because I I saw him at spring training on a. On a sideline, I can't remember where it was. Interviewed him a number of times at the ESPN Club, and uh, just a just terrific. And back in the day, I, I think I mentioned this. I have mentioned this on the show before. For inexplicably, California Angels were my American Le- uh, League West team. Since I was an Orioles fan, I wanted a West team. So those uh, late '70s Royals teams, I just hated them because they were always beating out the, the Angels to get to, to at least the ALCS. Um, and, uh, so I, I was never a fan of George Brett's and then, then I had an opportunity to interview him. And now one of my favorite people, and he's another one of those baseball guys, Mark, as you remember, you could ask him about a certain pitch in a certain game. And even if it were like a May third game in, you know, on Tuesday afternoon of a yep. double head, he remember the at bat, he would he's remember the at bat. He would remember the pitch. Yes. He would, he would remember the pitch before the pitch. And he would he would remember the sequence of pitches, and and that's what they do. They lock in. Right. The best players lock in. Ted Williams was the same way. Uh, you know, in football, I know at the club, Joe Montana, people were asking about certain plays, and he would talk about what happened exactly. You know, what the defense did, 
what he did to adjust to that, what they did to readjust, yeah. and and what was happening downfield, blah blah blah. It's, it's very very fun, and uh, and we miss those days. And and again, we you know this is this is a nice show because it helps us reflect on yeah. the time we had and that we will we will never have again. Yeah. That's one of my favorite. That's one of my favorite moments. St. Louis Cardinal fans were in the club, and. Uh, Talking to George Brett, and they brought up the whole, uh, was it Don Denkinger, the first base umpire that missed a a call by literally the width of a Buick? And uh, I don't don't know that the ball was out of the shortstop's hand, and he was calling the guy out at first. But anyway, um, it... uh, they brought it up to Brett, and so Brett literally goes through every inning prior to that. That's not why he lost the game. Here's why. Uh, top of the first. <laughs> and he ran through all of it, and it's just so fascinating. I would have said it, Mark. I'm going to say it again. Baseball, much more exciting to talk about and read about than it is actually to watch during the regular season. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll give you guys right. one guess where George Brett is is uh what organization he's with now one guess you can't say that's up oh, mark's wrong john's right 50 years this year with the kansas city wow. royals he's been a part of that organization for 50 years well i mean he is i guess if you you know we've talked about this before and now this is a fun parlor game and mark loves the parlor games is I do. Uh, mount rushmore's for any team and for the kansas city royals he would literally be, it'd be four different George Brett expressions would Probably. be the Mount Rushmore. Probably. Who else do you put there? Quisenberry? Some of the more recent uh, Royals may be able to go up there. Maybe a... Uh, uh, Moustakis? Moustakis or a, uh, what is it, Eric, uh, is it Ho- Hosmer? Or? Hosmer, Eric Hosmer. Hosmer. Hosmer and um, and and Quisenberry's good. Hauser could be interesting because he was the manager, yeah, for that for that period of time. But I mean, he really is one of those teams where most teams you 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 get about three names will pop up that you can. But you well, you look at the Royals, yeah. And for me, my knowledge of the Royals, my knowledge of the Royals is that era. So I think of Frank White and U L Washington and John Wathen, the catcher, and uh, Ned Yost. Ned Yost, John. Her- Daryl Porter as well, uh, but uh, Brett is by far. Yes. that's he's the George Washington of their of the of the uh, also, of the Royals Mount Rushmore. Also, Bo knows monuments. That's you know why I, I'd put I'd put Bo up there. <laughs> I just love the idea of four different expressions for George Brett. <laughs> that One would be an interesting monument. The pine tar incident. The other is when he's got the hemorrhoids and he has to sit out. Then there's one of him getting a hit. And then maybe like the expression when they went, uh, Perfect. when they went into there, there he is. There's George Brett. There's a good expression to put up. There. Yeah. George Brett card right there. <laughs> he's biting his lower lip. Must be dancing. Good looking uh, man. Good looking yeah. man. All right. So that that progressive is uh, is a conundrum right now for me, John Pelkey. I'm trying to think of uh, pitchers who are MVPs. You know who who could be. You know who it could be. It could be a Yankee pitcher from back in the day. Uh, maybe not a Whitey Ford, but someone of that ilk that may have snuck an MVP out there somehow. And won multiple World Series and played because long I, enough to play with Will Clark. Oh, no, you know, so, well, there you go, Will Clark and, and George Brett. So yeah, that's yeah. right. Good call. Yeah, I gave you your era, and it's the first thing you didn't pay attention to. But that is that's the that is I, I think the challenge of progressive trivia 
is that we all do. I do it as well, and we've been doing it as long as any. Mark, you've been doing it longer than anyone. You were were among the people who invented it uh, at the ESPN Club, is that all of a sudden you've glammed onto the first set of clues, and then the second set of clues comes up, and if if more than one of them hits on somebody you think about, you forget about the first set of clues, and you go, okay, I know it's him. And it's like, well, you know, I said he... You know, broke in during the Truman administration. That guy was born in 71. So, probably, you know, unless Truman had a much longer administration than any of us knew, that's not correct. But uh, all right. Final all right. set of clues, Mark. These 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 will be the giveaway for you. These will be the giveaway. Let me remind everybody of the first eight clues. 15 plus years in the majors for three teams. Won a Cy Young, 20 or more games only once in his career. Career numbers. Over 200 wins, 3.27 ERA, 2,100-plus strikeouts. Six-time All-Star, former MVP, played with George Brett and Will Clark, won multiple World Series. Pitched a no-hitter. These are the new clues. First pitcher in history to start All-Star games for both leagues. Played with Sal Bando and Gene Tennis. And my three World Series wins were all in a row. Right. Okay. I know who it is. You know who it is now. Uh, I, I, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure I do. I don't re- ever remember him winning an MVP. That's remarkable. Yes, he did. Same year as the Cy Young. That's good stuff right there. All right, so that's a uh, outstanding. <laughs> your 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 mind is right there, John. Yep, we're do- it we're really gonna, is. we're going to start doing some deep dives in a couple of weeks, and Johnny's mind is right there. Let's quickly talk about the NBA coming to Orlando, uh, and uh, we, we mentioned it earlier, starting around the 31st, actually it was before the show, the 31st of July, and the, the last possible game, if everything sort of goes to Game 7s in the postseason, would be October 12th. Uh, they're going to start the, you know, the, the warm-up, the preseason, if you will, uh, at the end of June. So basically all of July they're going to get into shape and play some games, quote-unquote. They're going to have an eight-game regular season, that will be used for seeding. It's a 22-team um, playoff. So, in other words, you've got 16 teams right now, John, that sort of, if the, if the, if the season were frozen, right. would go to the playoffs. And then you've got six teams who are definitely within a, within a stone's throw of, uh, of making the playoffs. And I believe, I couldn't get to the bottom of this, but I believe the real seeding is about that, is about really the four through eight seeds yeah. as opposed to the one through four. Because some of these, you know, like Milwaukee and Los Angeles, both have, I would think, insurmountable leads with eight games to play in terms right. of I think, number one seed. I think I might be right about this. I think it's like in the uh, in the Western Conference, and I believe we're uh, – are we, I believe we're – we're throwing conferences out when we get to the playoffs and it's just going to be a seeding situation. I believe um, I probably should check into that and make sure. But I think in the, in the West there, are, uh, I think three teams within three and a half or four games of the final spot. So it's, it's, it's going to be more to, to help those things work their way out. But uh, I, I think it's a, I think it's a, a pretty good plan. Um, it, it, it appears as of now that the NBA is going to be the first, of the major, the four major sports to get back to something. They're kind of leading the way on this. Are, and are I we think, counting uh, hockey? Well, when's hockey start? When's I don't, hockey want to play? I don't, think, I don't think they've got a date set yet, but they're going right. to start and, before the NBA. They will, they? They will okay. get going That's what before I wasn't the NBA. Sure yeah. Because I was going to mention. Yeah. 
I don't think they have a place either at this point. They do right. not. They haven't decided a city or actual date. So that's why I'm saying the first one to actually come up with uh, who's going to lead the way, um, maybe not playing the first game, but at least having a, a finalized schedule out there. What I think is interesting in the NHL, just to switch gears uh, briefly, Mark, is that the NHL is going to reseed after every um, series yeah. as opposed to setting up a bracket that's hard and fast. And I like that idea. I think well, that's fun because that's, that's an idea what they that's do. Cool. That's that's what every professional sports teams do. They reseed right. after every it. You know, no one adheres to the classic NCAA tournament format in professional sports. You know what I mean? So that's good. They should stick to that. All right, so so here's the gist of it. They're playing the eight-game preseason to have the seedings, and then the regular-style playoffs will begin. So it'll, it'll be east and west. It'll be uh, eight teams, and they will play as they always have and, well, as they re- recently have. So that's what's happening. The NBA will... Uh, you know, if everything goes well, I mean, I think Adam Silver is of the mind that someone will contract, you know, and get infected with COVID-19. And it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So the protocols in place, and and they're pretty stringent everywhere you look in terms of theme park reopenings, in terms of the proposed protocols for sports, uh, even even in restaurants and bars, which... Uh, start opening tonight, John Pelkey, so you know where to find me. Um, it is uh, it, it, it is very, very comprehensive, and I think it's going to be pretty interesting. You know, we've talked to some people at Disney, the ESPN Wide World of Sports. It's one location where they have multiple courts. They've got some practice courts. Everything can be contained under one quote-unquote roof. There's hotels within a mile or two. Plenty of hotels to house all the athletes, coaches, and and staff. And uh, I think they're going to treat it, even when it starts, even when the regular season starts July 31st, as a bubble. I don't think they're planning on having any fans in there, but I think the plan is to be open and amenable to the latest science, to the latest numbers, to the latest trends. And if you're a betting man, John and Jeff, between July 31st and October 12th, which is the slated Game 7 of the NBA 2019-2020 Finals, when and if will there be fans in the stands watching the games? Johnny, will there ever be? I I do. I think if it it goes uninterrupted... um, and and there are going to be cases, obviously, that that happen within that period of time. And I think there would certainly be a point where if they saw that they were having a number that was well outside of what uh, what was expected, they, they might have to stop again. And I know that's the biggest fear of all of these sports leagues. If they get started and then they have to stop again, that'll that'll really spell the end. I think of any season that has to do that, frankly, including the NFL season in college football. Um but I think that what you would probably see is a month's worth of play without fans. And then perhaps at that month period, if we've if, you know, depending again, this is so difficult because it's so fluid um, due due to the, uh, you know, the 
the difficulty we have of getting um, accurate numbers, which I think everyone agrees that there's a difficulty with that. But if I, I think if the if the numbers remain within whatever margin they have set up for this, I think after a month of play, you might see them opening up arenas, say, 25 percent or the areas where they're playing, say, arenas at this point, because they really consider where they're playing over at Wide World of Sports and Arena. There are more gyms or uh, field houses. But uh, I think you could see something like that a month in. So where do you, uh, you know, if someone gets infected, where where do they, they bring them? They bring them, like, to the Haunted Mansion and make them just stay in there for All-star music. What's that? All-star music resort. So it's an actual hotel that they put all of the infected people in there. I thought there was hotel, a motel, the rides, hotel, motel, whichever one you want to go with. Oh wow, my <laughs> goodness! Or bring back twenty thousand leagues under the sea, John. So you don't even you don't even even know they're there. You don't even know you know it, it's it's one of those things. Let's just sweep this under the rug. Let's continue to play basketball. They what? could do infections. No, they could do four players on the carousel of progress in each little section. But uh, <laughs> they may they may uh, wish they had more than COVID after a couple minutes of. There's a great big beautiful tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. I'll tell you, they need to update that. They need to update that. I, I, right now, the last room is the only thing they're allowed to update. I'll be perfectly happy with that. that. Is, right now, it's 20s. No, it's. I'm sorry. It's 1900s, 1920s, 1940s, and then some random 1990 kind of thing. It's, and it's, that's the only one they can update. So, in other words... Whatever happened between 1940, let's say they update it again next year or right now when everything's closed. So it goes from 1940 to 2020. I, I the funny thing is that that last room is what they thought that the 2000s were going to look like in the late 90s or late I 80s. Know. <laughs> I know. I think they need to start with the 40s. Start with the 40s. Do the 60s. Do the 80s and do now. Yeah. Why not? Uh I don't know. I like those first three. I feel like if they did the last room, they could have an iPad and we'd all be happy. All right. So there you go. So now now with the NBA, with these, to your point, John, the most solidified plans of any league right now, the polar opposite of that is Major League Baseball. And it's over the issue we all knew it was going to be over. And that's money. And as Jeff Patson points out, it's probably a $300 million shortfall which seems like a lot, but in a two or three billion dollar industry, maybe not so much. But it is the real bottom line for this is that you can't talk money. The NBA could talk money. Adam Silver could talk to Chris Paul, who could talk to Bob Iger, and they could figure out a way to make this thing happen. Why? Because they trusted each other. That's the thing. If you don't, you know, John and I can't can't talk about any plans, really, because he does not trust me. He no. does not trust me at all. We can't get past cursory conversation when I visit his house and try and plan for the future of AFR. That's right. I, I, I'm, I'm, you're the Tony Clark of those discussions. I'm, I'm going to stick with that. <laughs> I will you, stick with that right now. You, you are Tony Clark. me to Tony Clark. He called you. Called him Tucker Carlson. He's calling you Tony Clark. I mean, oh, the gloves yeah. are Man. off at this point. It's the yeah. Tucker and Tony show, is what it is. Oh my goodness! The goodness. Tucker and Tony show. Um, yeah, that's the thing, John. 
it is they are digging with every counter proposal that hits the airways and hits the hits publications it seems to me that they're digging their heels in further and further is, yeah, is that your perception yeah, yeah because i i said it a couple of weeks ago i was very optimistic and it seemed like that you know both sides had put forth their proposal knowing that the other side would never agree with it um but with enough things in there that could be discussed to at least sit down, work out some of the issues as far as, uh, you know, where players, because there are a lot of the, a lot of those issues as well, how players are going to be housed. Will family members be allowed to be with them? So work on some of those. And while that's going on, uh, as time passes a little bit and we find out more about where we're going to be sitting when they want to start the season, um, whittle down those money problems because because honestly then there are stories out there all over the place right now about they're not really that far apart money wise if you look at it um if you if you if you take a an educated guess as to what the revenue is going to be and i know that's a little bit difficult to do but frankly mark some some analysts are saying no it's going to be a hell of a lot easier to do than it is when you're when you're basing things on any sort of attendance you already know that those numbers don't even come into play. And right. you know what the television revenue is going to yes. be, advertising yeah. revenue, and you know what some of the other revenue that uh, teams take in are going to be, and you know. So it should actually be a little easier. Um, well, you know who could step up here, and that's because there's a lot of unknowns in terms of TV revenue with teams that own the means of production, that own the production. Uh, in, in other words, like the Yankees that own the entire network. Right. It's one thing to get the normal TV revenue from ads and so forth and and so on and from the ne- and from the networks that are paying you to show your product. It's another thing for how much you actually glean because you own the network. Right. And not every major league baseball team does that and all of those numbers I don't believe our public domain. No, I don't believe they are either. And it's one of the reasons people ask why baseball doesn't have a salary cap. And well, the baseball union, as we talked about, is a really good one and they don't want one. But teams have so much ancillary income in baseball that's not into the pot. Football is is essentially a socialist organization. They split all of that money because there is a television contract for the NFL involving different networks but for that one entity in baseball to your point there are teams that own and it's not just uh the yankees there are other teams that own networks or pieces of networks and as we know regional broadcast networks some of them are things like fox sports regional broadcast but then there are others that are different entities so really none of that's negotiated together so you could understand why an owner wouldn't want to share the money that sort of money with other owners but yeah. it makes things the, much more difficult. The Orioles owner owns the Orioles and the Nationals television broadcast stations. <laughs> so, man, back yeah. in the day. That's fucked nine, everybody money. And, and it, it really yes. is. In 1994, when the players went on strike and there was no World Series, I was bummed. I was bummed there wasn't a World Series. Yeah. Now the, now, the Giants had no chance to get there, so it didn't really matter to me. Although, Matt Williams was on a tear, uh, could have really broken the 61 home run mark in 1994, which is what it was at the time. And I thought, all right, well, hopefully it comes back. And, and you know, by the middle of 95, when we're playing baseball again, I'm back. I'm, I'm watching baseball. Yeah. 
But a lot of people around me were like, no, I'll never come back. Forget it. You know, it was one of those kinds of things. Yeah. And I always semi-rolled my eyes internally with those folks. It's like, really? I mean, you're early make- cancel culture, Mark, early cancel culture. I mean, yes, you're going to make that kind of call. Just I mean, come on. It's like, geez, you know, get uh, all right. So fine. You're going to not you're going to not come back to the baseball. Well, obviously, there was enough of those folks for the heads of Major League Baseball, including uh, Bud Selig, to say, you know, let's look the other way with all these drugs that are sort of finding their way into locker rooms. And um, and let's sort of maybe encourage it. You know, when you find, you know, the that anthro, whatever it was in Mark McGuire's uh, locker, yeah, it's no big deal. Let's quash that story. This is, you know, this is bringing fans back. So, and it did, and it worked, and the rest is history. But I will tell you, John, if baseball doesn't find a way to get their shit together for this one, I'm going to really, I'm going to be like one of those people I mocked in my head in 1994. Well, again, I mean, there's... it'll be like, it's the COVID, you assholes. Find right. a way. Be better than this. Be better than your stupid narratives that have been steeped in all kinds of mistrust over the decades, and Tony Clark, God, for once in your life, be clutch. Oh my God, just just kill. The, t- the title of this show needs to change to Killing Tony Clark, the podcast. Mark really? Ferreira takes Tony Clark to the woodshed. Seems like and Tony just, Clark's getting too much heat out there, similar to Drew Brees, and it's coming mainly from this one, you know, very, wow. very ill-listened-to podcast yeah, no, I, I think Tony Clark is, is the worst. I really do. I think he's a clam. Right, you won't even give him a chance to. He, he, he gets no comeback in your mind. Um, that's, if, now, that's un-American. If, I'm no, sure if he, we love tearing somebody down, but we all we all love to see somebody build themselves back up, except Lance Armstrong. If Tony Clark, if Tony Clark comes back, I'll be very happy. I really would. I well, really here's would. The thing. Here's the I'll interesting give him full thing. credit. That, you know, in '94, I thought that they, uh, the people who said they weren't going to watch baseball, and, and I was bummed that there wasn't going to be uh, a World Series like everybody else. Now we did it. We did also know that you know, NFL was in training camp at that point in time, and we were going to have NFL games on time, and college football games on time, and all of our sports were you know up and running. Now people are waiting for a sport to get up and going because they just they need that sort of visceral it, it, it is a sign in our society and has been used as this on many occasions most recently 911 but during world wars as well as a sign of normalcy and that you know we can have these great national things that we're either dealing with or having to deal with uh doing or having to deal with and uh but sports is there for us you know we can as thomas boswell said it, it can't all be world wars and heart surgery you need a little pleasant diversion in your day and i think people will to your point mark people take it personally i think now because they're going to look around at all these guys and say hey look at what we're going through the interesting thing about that is i would say they have more of an excuse to cancel the season this year than they really did in 94 where it was just simply a labor dispute well, isn't it just a labor dispute this time around? It's it, but it's a labor dispute brought on by a pandemic, which also throws in the extra added uh, issues of are players going to feel safe? Are there are these protocols? Baseball back then just had to come to money decisions. But again, none of the issues that players are bringing up 
have anything to do with safety. It has everything to do with competition. Well, no, there have been. Now, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm going to correct you. There have been players who have come out and said, I am not sure that I will, I will feel safe doing this. I'm going to need to see. To, to the point I was trying to make earlier, some players are asking to see uh, uh, more of the blueprint of how they're going to be housed and what kind of uh, – access their families are going to have to them and things like that, because there's some of that minutia that hasn't been worked out. I agree with that. And I agree with that. The people have come out and said that, but it is not what's holding up negotiations. Oh, no, I agree. All of those are things that can be worked out. This is not what's holding up negotiations is, is, uh, arguments over protocol. Okay. Now hold on though. But all the, the other thing is, you know, back then, People were going to show up and watch the game, so that revenue was going to be there. We are looking at the sport restarting without one of its major sources of revenue, and that's fans at the game. Right. So while that is a money that what that is a money issue, it's not a labor dispute like '94, where people were coming to the to, to to watch baseball games and baseball. You know, you were going to have that revenue. This to me, there are there are other roadblocks to get over to restart the season now that uh, to me uh, make it more difficult than back in 1994. That's I, the point I'm trying to make. Well, I think uh, I mean I understand that point, but I'm I guess I'm coming from the point of view that's talking about the players and how how I'm going to blame them more than I did in 94 because if anyone suffers in terms of what the offers are on the on the uh, on the table right now in terms of no fans coming it's the owners right because right now the players say just pay us per game and 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 they're and they're doing that you know that's a per game ratio based on television revenue and attendance I understand that so if they if they stick to those guns, and th- that's the reason why Major League Baseball came back with 48 games, because you know what, we're going to lose 600 th- million or 600 thousand dollars a game with this. So let's not do 82 times 600 thousand. Let's do 48 times 600 thousand. I'm sorry, it to me, to me, it's even more egregious. And, and, and this is beyond, above and beyond what Tom Glavin said, that even if they were in the righteous position, they'd still be blamed. I understand that. I, you know, I don't agree with that sort of mob mentality that ends up happening and always blames the millionaire as opposed to the billionaire. I get that. But in this case, in this case, the, the lack of fans and the, uh, w- when you equate that and put the algorithm with the offers on the table, the lack of fans hurts the owners more than the players, John. The players are not in a good position right now if baseball doesn't happen. I mean, would you agree with that? Uh, well, I think that I think there will be a as there always is. I think there'll there'll be more blame placed on the players than there are the owners. I don't know that I necessarily agree with you that they are more to blame. Um, I I think right now, and again, we have we haven't we haven't canceled the season. We are getting competing ideas from both sides as to what they want to do. So I don't want to beat either side up at this point. I'm glad that they're continuing at least to have a dialogue, apparently, to some extent. Um, but I think, uh, I, you know, I think there's plenty of blame to go around if there isn't a Major League Baseball season. But I'm going to stick to my guns and say, you know, this this for me, at least, I, I, I think losing the World Series in 94 was more egregious then it would be losing the season this this year in terms of 
what has to be worked through to get that World Series play. I, I couldn't I couldn't disagree with you more. If the NBA and the NHL, which are essentially contact sports, can be up and running, and baseball, which is a socially distant sport to begin with, can't get their shit together, then no, I am not going to give them any benefit of any doubt. I think I'm blaming them more for 94 than you are. Then I think that's that may have something to do with it, because I understand that. I understand your righteous indignation about that and how you feel. But I think uh, I, I think to allow a World Series to be canceled because of a labor dispute uh, and that being the only reason in 1994, to me, that disrespects the game more. This you may feel this disrespects people more, but that disrespected the game more in my mind. OK, fair enough. I, I, I hear that point. <laughs> I, I, and I want baseball played too. Trust me, I want yep. baseball played hundred hundred percent. But I do think, and I, I wish they would. And and again, there seems to be some sort of dialogue. Maybe it's all out in the media. I don't know. I don't know what's going on behind closed doors. But I would like to see them continue to have a dialogue about maybe some of the things that they're that aren't just one hundred percent money things, and and work, start to work out that framework more. I think that would make a great deal of sense for the owners, Mark. Because to your point, if they did all of that. And then it just came down to sheer paychecks. Everybody's yeah. going to blame the players. Because yeah, the one thing the players have on their side is that these owners don't have to go to these games. So they're mm-hmm. not they're not putting their health at issue true. anywhere. That's so that's true. the one they've got going for them, except, whether it's, whether it's it, valid or not. Except for the NBA and the NHL. If they come back and people are, you know, athletes are on top of each other in those sports and you know you're 90 feet away from the from the nearest player in in major league baseball i'm not sure that will fly either and 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 to your point i get it that that you really took 94 to heart because it was over a simple labor dispute i get that point i really do i guess at the time i just felt like you know there's been strikes before in in football and in baseball this just happened to have bad timing on this one you know well i, mean, I think maybe that's it i think if everybody would have could, could have got together a little bit better on the timing and said listen we're not going to lose the world series we may lose the first 6 months of the next season right but we're not going to lose the world series but just but to shut down when they did and to lose the world series and again i forgave them and i came back and watched baseball the next year it's probably at spring training games for god's sake but i do think that one that that one bis, uh, was uh, a little bit more of a stain on uh, on the business of baseball than this one will be. It's so interesting. I'm just realizing this now, John, that the teams y- you have followed closely, the Braves and the Redskins in the, in the, in the case I'm going to make right now, all won their championships in a strike season. Like they needed some sort of, now the, some the skin- sort of, you know, they needed some sort of shortening or addendum or some sort of, let me, you know, let me just point out. Can I point out one thing? The skins yeah. won the 91 season. There was no out. There was no out to, that that was the exception that proves the rule. Yes. That's the exception that proves the rule. 95 <laughs> Braves, 82 Redskins, 87 Redskins. Yeah, 91 Redskins. You're right. Uh, that was one of the I think talk about loss to history. That's a good one. That's one of the best teams of all time, that 91 Redskins team. And no one ever brings that up. Well, I'll say somebody uh, had posted and uh, I, I think I've saved the article somewhere and I'm so bad at that. But uh, the top 10 teams in NFL history and they said the 91 Redskins, I believe, were number eight. All right. In that top sure. 10 teams. And they're basically going through. And there were there were several in there that were surprises. I was surprised because I've argued that forever. The 83 team was better than the 82 team that won. And the 91 team was probably the best of, of all of those. Um, 
But uh, th- in this article, they they did uh, they dropped them right down there in the top ten and said, you know, this team was dominant. It. Uh, All right. So, so there you go. See, the arc of history does bend towards justice, John. It, it really does. It <laughs> let's, really, let's really have does. the answer to your progressive trivia, please. All right, folks, here we go. Here were your clues. 15 plus years in the majors for three teams. One a Cy Young, 200 plus wins, 3.27 ERA, 2100 plus strikeouts, six time all-star, former MVP, played with George Brett and Will Clark, multiple World Series champion. First pitcher in history to start an all-star game for both leagues, pitched a no-hitter, and actually pitched a combined no-hitter as well, and played with Sal Bando and Gene Tennis, won his three World Series in a row with the amazing A's of the early 1970s, and the answer is Vita Blue. Vita Blue. Didn't remember Blue. 71 won his Cy Young. 71. 24 wins that year. And it looked like he was going to get 30. And, uh, he went at one point. He won twelve out of fourteen games, and every one was a complete game. I believe it, it's just crazy when you that go back and look at season. And and then he had a great year for the '78 Giants. I think they may have. Won, that's the year he made made the All Star game for the National League team. Yep. So Vita Blue, I love that one. That's. That's the best progressive trivia you've ever done. <laughs> and I did it in 11 minutes. See, see, well, I think, wait, I think I honestly, I think back in the day I had done, I, I had done one. And I, I think because the, the statistic that I remembered was that first person and four pitchers have done it since, but the first pitcher to start the all-star games for both leagues. I think that is it, when we talk about stats that we really love, that's one that if you, if you had to have like a cool stat in a sport, to be that yep. pitcher would be yep. really cool. No doubt about it. That is great. Vita Blue, one of the all-timers, and, and what a great character. And, you know, the kind of athlete we love because he's he's high, he's low, he's had some really bad times, he's back. He's, he's yeah. high again. He's high again and again and again. He spent a lot of time well, you know, the funny. The funny thing is, um, I've just started reading a book on the amazing A's of the, of the 70s, and that's part of why I'm here with this. But uh, there was a point where Charlie Finley wanted uh, Blue to tell everybody that his middle name was True, so they could call him True Blue, because Charlie Finley, the owner of the A's, famously gave Jim Hat- Hunter his nickname of Catfish. Um, and, and and Blue was like, uh, we want you to go by True Blue. We'll even put True on the back of your jersey. And Vita Blue was like, I'm Vita Blue Jr. That was my father's name. I am not going away from that. And uh, he said, no, no, it'll be great. And and Blue said, under no circumstances. And then he went out to take the mound and a start. And on their million and a half dollar scoreboard that they had in Oakland Stadium, now pitching tonight for the A's, true blue. <laughs> Finley went ahead and did it anyway. Just, just a remarkable, remarkable team, remarkable stories and players. Oh, no. But I, the other thing I thought with Blue was the fact that he never won 20 or more games in a season yeah. than yeah. that season. They get yeah. 18 a couple of times, 17, and stayed a fairly consistently good pitcher for a long time, 17 years total in the majors. Um, but, yeah. uh, you know, that's just one of those – you don't think that from Cy Young winners, MVPs. You think, well, he probably played 15-plus years, won 200 games. Probably had four or five seasons over 20, and but nope, just the one. Great statistic, Vita Blue, one of my favorite players. I think I remember, now I may have made this up, but I'm going to say it anyway. So this may not actually be truthful. It may simply be a story that resides somewhere in the dark recesses of my mind. But I remember the show, um, uh, It's Your Life. Was that the name of it? With uh, Ralph 
something or other. Uh, yeah, I, I, I know they, what you're talking about. They'd surprise somebody. They, this is your life. It's your life. That's it. This is your life. And they'd surprise them. It's like they were going to buy a washer and then all of a sudden the back wall opened up and they were in a studio. How they didn't know they were on the way to the studio when they got there. I don't know. might have been the first reality television show. But it was for Satchel Page. And it would have been probably 1969, 1970. And uh, Bida Blue actually came out uh, and, you know, I, I, he knew Paige and uh, was one of the people they brought on. They always surprise somebody that they bring on. Uh, but that was kind of my first memory of Vita Blue. And I remember when he came out, I remember my dad or my grandfather or something saying, oh, that Vita Blue, he's uh, he, he's a hell of a pitcher. And so, I, you know, as a kid. You hear that and you think, oh, and then, you know, a couple of years later or maybe even that season might have been 72 at that point. Uh, Vita Blue in the World Series with those amazing A's three in a row. First baseball team I was ever really familiar with. I knew the well, Orioles and the yeah. Senators round, but the first team that I was aware of championship caliber team, even though in 69, the Orioles were there, but I was five. You know, you sure. don't really pick up on it. Was that uh, A's team? And boy, if you're gonna, if you're going to dive into a baseball and and a team that's not your hometown team, couldn't do much better than that. And and they weren't my hometown team, as you know. It's uh, you know, it was verboten to uh, to root for the A's, but I rooted for the A's back in the day. And uh, and and my mom, you know, I I think part of She's it is just Jake Brom's type. What's that? what's that? You know, your mom, a little more Jake from. Wow. My goodness. No, I mean, she she liked Willie McCovey. She liked Willie Mays. She liked Orlando she Cepeda. She's a San Francisco elitist. And, you know, there's that Oakland-San Francisco thing where they each look down on each other for different reasons. Well, the thing is, is that she has said to me, it's not about anything about the Oakland people. It has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with the fact, to your point, they're not San Francisco. They're not, but boy, oh boy, did I love Vita Blue in 1971 because in 1971, both the A's and the Giants won their division. They both lost in the playoffs. Of course, the A's then went, went on to win three straight World Series and the Giants went on to completely uh, implode. But that 71 season is highly memorable for me, and a big part of that was Vita Blue. I loved Vita Blue. Back in that day, and then when he came to the Giants in '78 and was 18 and 10 for crying out loud, started the world, started the All Star game, and and we were in that race up until the very end. Uh, you know that just solidified everything for me. All right, ladies, gentlemen, everyone out there, everyone out there. After further review, that does it for us. Vita Blue is our uh, is our uh, is our person, and I think we need to one more time let people know about. Uh, the the documentary, the yeah. documentary that you would like to have, like you would like to see, and I think what John and I are going to start doing, maybe once every couple of weeks, is basically give you the documentary we want to see, and we're going to try and do that uh, a week from Wednesday, and we are going to get into it something. A, a, a documentary that has not been out there about a sports person, about a team, about an era, about a city. Let us know what that is, podcastafr at gmail.com, podcastafr at gmail.com. Before we leave, any final thoughts, Jeff? Let's just keep uh, figuring out how to love everybody. 
Yeah, no doubt. Absolutely good. Um, uh, final couple final thoughts from me, Mark. Uh, are uh, you brought up the steroids in baseball and how uh, home runs brought people back? Because everybody digs the long ball apparently, except me. Um, but uh, the next thirty for thirty documentary after uh, Bruce Lee this weekend. Uh, as watching documentaries has become my avocation, um, will be on the summer home run chase between Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire. So that that's another one that is a really good one, a really no. good one because no. yeah, guys who are now you know not reviled, maybe you know Sosa somewhat forgotten, and McGuire is just such a you know. Boy, I tell you, when, when forgiveness, I don't know if forgiveness ever comes to Mark McGuire completely. Um, and sadly, I say that. But those two guys are one of the big reasons that some of those folks probably that you talked about who didn't dial into baseball at the beginning of that season, by the middle of that summer, everybody was paying attention to that home run race. Yeah, and it's because of them. They saved Major League Baseball. You could make an argument that they saved Major League Baseball, and yet now they're somehow reviled. I don't know. I, that kind of thing, it's like if you loved them back then, and you loved them for all of that, and you heard about the andro or the anthro, <laughs> whatever it is, and you know, and then after the fact, you think he's a bad guy. Ah, I just don't I just I don't have any time for you because it's not like they did anything that I mean and again you can make the argument for for Lance Armstrong in his mind everyone I was, was doing just going to bring that's, that up that's, he says that's in that what documentary you do. have you seen part 2 of the documentary yet I, I have I have he talks about in the documentary you know these guys are invited back these guys are still part of everything but he brought up himself you know I can't be anywhere near cycling oh my god that would be horrible and then that uh, poor uh, gentleman from uh, Germany Jans and again I don't know cycle racing I don't remember Center. particularly but uh sure okay uh, it's probably not Jan Stenerud, but um, other guys in Europe who had also tested positive and, and, and doped. And we are talked about everybody in cycling doped at that period of time. They're they're forgiven. And these guys were not forgiven. And I think with Lance Armstrong and again, he's a he's a he's a prickly character. There's no doubt about it. And a very complicated guy. But I think, you know, people saying, well, you know, he gave me hope and helped me fight cancer. So I'm offended. And I'm thinking, well. You know, dude, okay, yeah, he shouldn't have cheated. And they took all of those things away from him. But I think you could look at that foundation that he did, the Livestrong Foundation. They did an awful lot of good, and he does deserve some credit for that. And why he wouldn't be forgiven because at least he did that. Yeah. And other guys would be forgiven because they fessed up earlier. You know, it just... And we're also going to be Rose, too. We're also, yeah, exactly. We're going to experiment. It's interesting because everyone wants, everyone's forgiven Pete Rose, except Major League Baseball. Everyone has forgiven him. He wasn't always in that position, you know, in terms of the mob. The mob has forgiven Pete Rose. The mob has not quite forgiven Roger or Barry, or certainly Sammy or Mark McGuire, or certainly Lance Armstrong. And, you know, if we do go to a YouTube Live, kind of thing where we can have immediate response i would be highly interested in what's that criteria yeah what's this sort of magic line that the mob decides who gets forgiveness who doesn't what in the hell is that criteria i mean you know you know john i'm i started the show saying everything's turning out (laughs) 
Everything's getting better. This is a turnaround Friday. And, uh, you know, I end the, I end the show, uh, you know, dark and angry. Well, I, mean, I don't I want to end it not dark and angry, but something that I was remiss. I forgot to do it on Wednesday and I really wanted to do it. I wanted to say uh, one of my earliest sports heroes passed away this week. Wes Unseld, a uh, great Hall of Fame basketball player for for my Washington Bullets, uh, passed away, I think, at the age of 74. He'd stayed and worked with the organization for a, a long time. And Wes Unseld was a guy who you paid the price if you went into paint with way, way, uh, with Wes Unseld. And part of that championship, a Bullets team, team that won the NBA championship, went to other championships as well. So uh, rest in peace, Wes Unseld. Uh, he was a he was a class act and a and a great great player. Nice tribute, Johnny. We all uh, well, I certainly remember Wes Unseld as well. And uh, thank you very much. Uh, a great tribute from a, a true fan and a local fan at the time. All right, that does it for us. Folks, thank you for listening to After Further Review. We will be back on Monday. Lots of changes coming up next week. Have a safe and happy weekend.